0: Hey folks, welcome back to Police Pod Talk. It's been a while, but uh, we're up and running again. Um, We had to hold off a little bit because I like doing interviews, but I don't like doing them over the phone. But today I am blessed to have an old friend of mine uh, who reached out to me, and uh, I just couldn't wait. I cannot wait. I've got uh, Scott Morales. He's one of uh, Fort Wayne's finest. Retired, Scott, you can say hey to the people out there and let them know you're here.
1: Hello there. How are y'all? All All right.
0: (laughs) We're meeting in a strange place, but we're meeting. And uh, Scott's going to talk a little bit about his career, uh, where he's at, and then we're going to talk about something that he did that uh, I've always joked about doing, but he's actually done it. He's uh, wrote a book, and we're going to talk about that. But, uh, Scott, give the people a little rundown on uh, your career, uh, where you started, how you got started, and then uh, we'll slowly get into your book. And, and, again, thank you for being here. I, I, I just can't believe this. It's, it's always fun to see guys that you worked with or saw a long time ago, and they still look the same, <laughs> just, just out of uniform. Oh,
1: great. So 30, uh, 20 years ago, I looked like I was 60. That's good <laughs> um.
0: you, you just don't have your uniform I, on. I, I know. You, 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 look, you look the same, man. Oh, <laughs> I'm telling you. I am sorry. Go ahead, man. Go ahead. Uh,
1: so, anyway, uh, well, um. Well, I started out as a child, and uh, when, um, oh, I don't know, I grew up in the 60s, so like, uh, you know, 1966 and all, you had Batman and oh, yeah. yeah. Adam-12 mm-hmm. and all that, so I, w- I was always kind of drawn into law enforcement. Um, I had an uncle that is, uh, or was a Secret Service agent under uh, John Kennedy and Lyndon Johnson, Um, he worked for Austin PD, he was involved in some things in Austin, and then he worked with the DEA and had, um, uh, he had a pretty, pretty colorful career, so I'd listen to his stories and all he'd tell me, and and then, um, so I kind of got the juices flowing about wanting to be in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. And then, um, I grew up in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, and, um, lived there for 30 years, my family was involved in, uh, they had like an explorer program that was called Junior Deputies. Right. So the sheriff's office there, East Baton Rouge Parish Sheriff's Office, they, they uh, would take kids and have sheriff's uh, deputies from different sections would come in and talk to us on a Saturday. And we would do tours of the crime lab. And the big thing at the crime lab was they had a, a big jar with hands that was involved in some kind of a crime and they end up taking the hands off and they end up mummifying them in this jar of formaldehyde or whatever. that was a big thing, the hands in the jar, you know.
0: Wait, wait, these were hands of bad people?
1: Yeah, yeah. It was like a, you know, a victim's hands or something that was involved in a crime. Really? So we all would go there, do the hands, you know. So, um, but then we would, um, they would have like a canine would come out or a, uh, helicopter, like we actually repelled from a helicopter. Uh, I was able to shoot a Thompson machine gun with the big, the big drum on it, and it about walked me across the, <laughs> the yard. But then we were we would at the end of the day we would have um, uh, 22 caliber rifle, um, uh, target shooting, and we were all NRA certified rifle instructors. So um, we competed for trophies and things like that. So. So it really got me involved in in law enforcement at an early age. Mm-hmm. So graduated from high school seventy eight, and then went to LSU for a couple of years, and uh, got broke real quick. <laughs> so I mean, I, I didn't have any you know student loans or anything, so I was paying my way. But after right. a while, you just get broke. And I was going, I, I wanted to be a uh, Well, at the time, Geraldo Rivero was real big, and I wanted to be an investigative journalist. Oh, yeah, yeah. So I went into journalism, and that was a bust. (laughs) So I I left college and then uh, got hired with Sheriff's Office in 1981 and was um, a dispatcher, uh, jailer, patrol officer, crime scene. So I ended up working crime scene. Mm -hmm. And after uh, about 10 years... uh, I had an opportunity to transfer to Fort Wayne, uh, do a, a lateral transfer for uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana. I had some family that moved up here and was working, and so checked it out, and and it was a real boom, 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 boom process. I mean, within like three months, boom, I was hired. So, um, now what what year was that? when that you That was came? 1990, 1990, December 1990. I was the first lateral class. There were eight of us. And, um
0: well, name a couple of names that oh we right.
1: had uh let's see uh uh, uh Al Garriott, uh mm-hmm. Rufus Brown yep. Bill black mm-hmm. uh Al, um Chris meals uh, yeah uh Chris schuford uh, uh yeah Chris uh, Shuford, not Schuford, uh, uh Shuford, get Chris's last name now uh um uh, oh there are a couple of other I can't remember right off hand but there were eight of us okay and um and uh, we came on, and then we did our FTO, and they did it abbreviated since we were already trained. We're all mm-hmm. trained police officers. So then we put us on the street, and Bill Black and I uh, partnered up for a while. And I ended up spending majority of my career on third shift. And um, now, back when I was with the sheriff's office, um, I had a, an, an incident where I had a tire explode in my face, and deafened me for three days. I was absolutely stone cold deaf. And after about three days or so, my hearing came back and I developed tinnitus really bad. Mm-hmm. So, <clears throat> I had tinnitus. Um, and then when I was on, on Fort Wayne in uh, 92 and 93, I was involved in two different shootings. And so, that just helped aggravate the situation. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. Um, so I've you know I've always been carrying that. That's always been a problem.
0: Now, now I'm I'm going to stop you there because mm-hmm. I know I'm going to get someone to say, "Well, why didn't you ask him about the shootings? You um, want to okay. talk about them? Just elaborate a little bit more on because you know I'm going
1: to get the, fir- it. the first the first shooting I was in. I was actually it was a Taco Bell parking lot, South Anthony, mm-hmm. and it was myself and another uh, officer, and it was a drunk driver pulled in parking lot, and I made a tactical error. Instead of going around the back of the car, there's two people in the car. Instead of going around the back of the car, I started to walk around the front of the car because the passenger was doing something like hiding something. Mm-hmm. So I was watching him while my partner was talking to the driver, and as we, I stepped in front of the car, the driver pulled a gun. The partner yelled, gun. I turned and looked. The driver hit the gas, and when he did that, he hit me on the inside of my left thigh and just basically split, split me. Flipped me in the air, I landed on the ground, he took off. He was firing shots. We were firing, our, our partner was firing shots at the car. The guy went through, went through the drive through was come back around. Well, by that time I didn't realize I, you know, I jumped back up and then mm-hmm. I stood up and I realized I'm hurt. Right. <laughs> so I'm balancing on my right leg and standing right in front of the car. And the car's coming at him and I at me and I pointing at him and i'm yelling at him to stop and he looks at me and he looks right through me and he guns it Mm. so i sidestep and as he goes past me i fired and the bullet uh went through the car door and hit him right inside his knee went up into his groin and delivered whatever was in his groin into the passenger side so and he took off and um and they took me to the hospital, and they brought him to the hospital. Same Well, uh-huh. he brought himself to the hospital. That right. he about bled out, and um, he. Uh, uh, we're all standing around, you know. I'm in the ER and everything like that, and other officers are there. And, and his wife comes in, and she pulls a gun out of the bag and says, "This is my gun. I've had this gun all night. No one's had this gun." It's like. No one said anyone about anybody having a gun, man. What are you doing with a gun? So anyway, he got charged with, uh, uh, I think it was like felony battery on an officer or something like that. And, and it took me, oh, a couple of months or so of rehab mm-hmm. right. uh, because I my, my, li- my leg was all black and blue and black more than blue. So <clears throat> then I get back and work in one night and a vehicle – blows by us and we go to stop it and 100 mile an hour pursuit and the guy he's in a van, it's getting closer he slams on his brakes and puts it in reverse and rams us and when he does that he sets off the airbags Mm -hmm. and then he pulls up and comes back again Well, I kick the door open and jump out of the car and he hits the car and he pushes it back about 45 feet and now I'm in front of the car and he's chasing me, and this is on St. Joe Road, out uh, past Canterbury. Okay. And he's chasing me down the road, and there's a ditch and a barbed wire fence, and I'm trying to stay on the, you know, trying to keep from falling in the ditch, and as he's coming up behind me, I turn around and I fired. And the first bullet went through, I believe, through the windshield and hit the seatbelt. Mm-hmm. It was lodged in the seatbelt next to his head, and then the other ones hit the van. And... Uh, he went down a little bit further lost control crashed and he was habitual traffic violator he was drunk had weed on him you know uh he was a convicted felon all mm-hmm. kind of stuff like that so both shootings were ruled justified mm-hmm. you know and um but you know anytime you shoot a weapon and you're in well uh anytime you're Within close proximity, shooting a weapon, you're going to have that right. Oh yeah, that blowback. So it it just aggravated my situation. So over time, it's getting to a point now where I'm, you know, say I'm 60, so I'm going to be 61. Oh my God, I'm 61. I forgot that. Um, <laughs> but I, you know, but you it, still it, look the same. I'm telling you. I guess I, 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 I still look when I'm 30. Um, but yeah, I it it just you know aggravates. Right, so I have right. this constant ringing. Um, but I'm able. Some of the things that I have um, that I, I, I'll mention later, but I, I put that as character traits of the character in my book that mm-hmm. I write about. So, right. so did, I'm, um, I'm sorry
0: for it's time, but I had to get those stories out. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, yeah, I appreciate I, yeah. you sharing well, those. <laughs> those, are, those. You know, are I,
1: it's funny because I went back through, um, I have a scrapbook, and I was going through my scrapbook and looking at, I had a very varied career when I was at Fort Wayne. I mean, I had suspensions, and I had highs and lows. I oh, mean, yeah, in yeah. 1986, we were having... Uh, that crack cocaine was getting real big oh, there in the fort. Yeah. Yep. That's about the so, my mother's yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, but we were having a lot of drive-by shootings, mm-hmm. and the guys were wearing vest, bulletproof yeah. vests, bulletproof yeah. vests. So in Louisiana where I came from, it was illegal to wear a vest. In a performance of a felony. If you were committing a bank robbery or, or, or anything and you wore a vest, that was an augmented sentence on what right. you had. So I didn't have anything like that in Indiana. So I took a few days off, went back to Louisiana, actually found the lawmaker that wrote the law and sat down with him and he gave me all of his information, took it back to Fort Wayne, and uh, Chief Neil Moore, yep. absolutely love Chief Moore, mm-hmm. he's a great guy. Um he allowed me, it was him and Tom Weiss, Senator Tom Weiss, and we sat down and wrote Illegal Use of Body Armor mm-hmm. and uh, presented it to the um, State Senate. And the first time it was proposed, it was defeated. second time it was proposed, it passed overwhelmingly. So in June of '96, Illegal Use of Body Armor uh, became law, which right. I'm really proud of because it's a law I wrote. And yeah. it meant a lot because... Um, not only did it affect us in Fort Wayne, but immediately after that, there was a, a robbery at the uh, Huggy Bear's little uh, hotel in mm-hmm. Huntington. Mm-hmm. And the guy was wearing a vest, and that was the first test case. And the guy was convicted, and he got three years on top of his sentence because of that, of hmm. him wearing a vest. And and then I, I kept up with it, and there were, uh, in Gary and... Uh, Kokomo and Indy, they were having these cases, and they were trying and convicting and putting people, putting this charge on top of them, right. and it was really, you know, it, it was really helping locking in their sentence. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. so I was really proud of that. Um, and you know, like I said, I was suspended. I I, I did my time, you know. But we, we you know, we, I'm need, we don't at, need to hear about no. That. But <laughs> I tell you what, you know, I did, and I looked over things, and I had with my department. Yeah, I had suspensions, but I also had 122 letters of commendation from the department as well as from citizens for cases I've worked and right. from uh, things. So, yeah.
0: Well, well, give us give us one of the cases that you worked that you really. I mean, writing a law, getting a law passed that, that's huge. <laughs> I mean, you know,
1: I worked a lot when I worked detective Bureau mm-hmm. and. Uh, uh, I know you'd interviewed uh, Joe Lyon uh-huh. and uh, Greg, Igor, <laughs> I love Joe. Joe's a great guy. He and I worked together in the pawn shop detail. Right. And we were able to recover thousands of dollars, hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of property. And Joe's gone on to, to do so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the most satisfying case I worked was the last year I was on a the department. There was a case where there was a, uh, an elderly lady in Wayndale went to the gas station and went to put gas in her car. And there was a young man there, and she asked him, she gave him a $50 bill and said, would you mind going in there and paying because it's hard for me to walk to the gas station in 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 there. So he goes, sure. So he goes in, jumps in his car, and drives off. (laughs) And she she was out. She was on a fixed income, and she was out this money. And uh, one of the news stations did a story about that. And I saw it, I saw it on Facebook, and it just outraged me. It really Mm -hmm. did. So I checked with our detective bureau, said, is anybody working this? I said, well, it's a misdemeanor. I said, I want it. Right, right. (laughs) Well, I worked this case and ended up through just incredible community uh, participation. People were just up in arms about this. And um, uh, Glenbrook Dodge helped me with ID in the vehicle, and... Then I went through the Fusion Center mm-hmm. and did all kind of background check and everything. And finally, someone went to the owner of the gas station and said, hey, I can tell you who this guy was. He's not from here. He's from Tennessee. And uh, he gave you know gave me his name. And then I started doing a whole research, whole background on him. Well, the truck didn't come back to him. So I was kind of at a dead end there. But then I started calling around and come to find out he was his friend's truck. Well, get friend's truck, gets a friend's name, run his truck. Sure enough, the truck m- matches and all. Long story short, I get in touch with this kid. He's like 19 years old. Right. And I call him on the phone. I said, look, dude, you don't know this right now, but you're the most hated man in Fort Wayne. <laughs> and this is the deal. Um, I could come over to your house in Tennessee in the middle of the night and drag your butt out of bed with a warrant and take you back here and face court. Or you can... Send a money order for 50 bucks and write this lady a letter of apology. Right, right. And he's like, okay, okay. So sure enough, within two days, he sent a money order to her. He sent a letter of apology. And we got this lady back, you know, her money. Right. And that was the most satisfying case of everything I'd worked because it was something that everybody else would have overlooked. Right. But I felt that I had a duty to this woman and to Mm -hmm. this citizen that crime, no matter how small. It needs to be addressed. There you go. And there needs to be justice done. And it was justice done. And, and, I'm, and I'm really, really proud of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, I had <clears throat> going through the, you know, the, the the cases and things that I worked in, and um, There's one. I kept one case, which is <clears throat> the basis of the next book I'm writing. <clears throat> when I was in Baton Rouge, I worked a, a serial killer. Well, at the time, I didn't know it was a serial killer case. But I worked a homicide. And the body was found within a month, and it was skeletal, skeletal mm-hmm. remains. There was no evidence. We knew the cause of death, but we had nothing. And this was in 1986. About 1994, 95 around there, uh, when I was with Fort Wayne, there was a story came out of Baton Rouge that during the, that time period, there were two serial killers that were working in Baton Rouge. Uh, Derek Todd Lee was one and this other one who it all, his name always slips in my mind I can't remember right now but um, this victim was found right in the center of the triangle where these guys worked mm-hmm. and I contacted my department and uh, my old department and said hey have y'all looked at it and said well we know it's not Lee uh, because Derek Todd Lee was a male black and this other guy was a, was a male white and we actually had a Witness who saw the suspect with the victim before they left, so we knew it was a white, a white male. But we believe that it's this other guy. We're, we're fairly certain it is, and but he never confessed to it. He said there was no physical evidence and everything to tie him to it, so it's an unsolved case. Hmm. I carry that case with me for a long time, and there was actual there was a picture that was in the newspaper of me working the scene, and um, it's. Uh, it's, it's always stated. The victim's name is Mary Thornton. But I used her case as the seed to write my next book, which was actually the first book I wrote. Mm-hmm. Um, but it needed some work. So back to Fort Wayne with with the department. I worked um, in the detective bureau and ended up working in property crimes and then uh, retired 2013. And it was just a good time. I, I had just got married. Um, in December of uh, 2012 so I was I stayed with the department for about another three months and then retired and we moved to Cincinnati mm-hmm. worked in Cincinnati for three years I was a, a security supervisor at the Netherland Hilton which is the oldest um, Hilton in the United States and then they have Carew Tower which is a business center that has the Secretary of State the State Treasurer's Office so we did dignitary protection for them And then we did protection for celebrities, the Eagles, you know, uh, the Indianapolis Colts Hmm. would come there. We did dignitary protection for them. And um, then in 2016, we moved to um, Nashville. And and the reason we moved, my wife's company, or my wife was a marketing manager, so she would go to different companies and do the marketing. Right. So we moved to Nashville, and we're in um, 2016, and we've pretty much been in the Nashville area ever since. And I work now um, with a security company. That does security for AT and T, um, and so all the fiber and everything they run. We go out with the crews. Some of the neighborhoods are kind of rough, you know. So we're in uniform, we're armed, um, and a lot of a lot of the companies in the Nashville area hire retired police officers, and um, you know, which is fine because Metro was we get along real well with Metro right. and PD. So so it's been a good it's been a good run. Here, I've been doing that for about six years. and
0: So how many years did you have total? I had Long 32. 32. Uh,
1: almost, almost 33 when I retired because I had uh, 10 years in Baton Rouge and then 22 and a half in Fort Wayne.
0: Okay. So all that counted?
1: Yeah. Because it, it my date of uh, separation, I, I retired. I had 10 years vested in, in Baton Rouge on um, December December twelfth, nineteen ninety, at noon, and I was sworn in at twelve oh one at Fort Wayne. So I had my I had my thing set, you know. Oh, yeah. So at twelve oh one. So I had continuous service and all Oh okay. So it was uh, it, you know, I I d I didn't have a break in there and, and um I mean, was you know, it was a good career. A good
0: so career. what you're doing now is still police work?
1: It's um, it's more private security. I mean we, we do um, I work for a, a security company in investigations, but my my job right now is physical security for the property of AT and T or uh, for the workers. Um, a lot of stuff it it's a lot of times you're just standing out there directing traffic. You know, you got a truck on the street and you're just directing traffic. And um, uh, you know, I mean people we dress our uniforms we're, we're a blue uniform just like metro. We look just like Metro or the mm-hmm. Our patches are just a little different, but I wear my Fort Wayne retired badge, and um, uh, my traffic vest has my patch Fort Wayne PD retired, <laughs> you know, and that's fine because everyone has their own retired, you know, and uh, people, you know, we're, we're telling them right off the bat, hey, you know, I'll, I'm retired if you yeah. need metro, <laughs> Here, let me give you three numbers nine, one, and one. So, uh, so, but I mean, we've had to deal with some things, you know, that, that uh, you got to deal with firsthand. And then, right. you know, you deal with situation, you get Metro over there, and then they take them from there also. Right. But it's been hazardous. I mean, like last year, we had that uh, the bombing uh, there in uh, downtown uh, Nashville. Mm-hmm. And um, those are like construction sites and things that we guard and we watch. And, um, you know, we were just fortunate that it was, the way it was done, that nobody was hurt. But uh, it, it's hazardous. I mean, we've had security officers have been uh, injured, on you know, in traffic situations, or we've had them attacked by people, mm-hmm. you know, because they'll see, they'll think you're police. And if right. you can oh yeah. yeah, get that anti-police mentality, mm-hmm. you know. So,
0: so all the years you were with Fort Wayne, did you enjoy it?
1: Oh, my God. Those were the best. Well, when I worked third shift, okay, um, third herd, that was the best group of guys I ever worked with. And I still keep in touch with them. And we're actually thinking about trying to get a a third shift reunion. Because, I mean, we're talking about, oh, God, Mark Loudon and Tom Christen and Jerry Miracle and Bill Michaels and Shane Hopkins and – Dan Hudson and Al, uh, Al Davis, and just oh, yeah. all bunch of. I tell you what, I I'd, I'd, I'd lay down my life for any of these guys, and the same thing with them. Right. We were in so many situations and so many things where you, you know, you never really understand the camaraderie, mm-hmm. and that that was one of the things. When I retired, I retired May first, twenty thirteen, and right after that, Ferguson hit. Yeah. And I was so torn because it's like I want to be in there with my brothers mm-hmm. because I see what they're going through. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, it's a solid wall of, of, of support and love for these guys and, and, and girls. But then I'm like, man, I'm so glad I'm out of it. <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I'm glad that uh, that I don't have to, you know, if I turn left – Instead of turning right, I don't have to be in front of IA, you right, know. Right. And um, it, it's it, it's kind of it's refreshing, and it takes a lot of stress and weight off of you that you're not doing the day to day. But I mean, I still wear a vest, mm-hmm. I still carry a gun, I mm-hmm. still uh, qualify, I um, I still try and keep myself in shape because I mean I've I've already been on a couple of Altercations where it's like, you know, you got to get it done, 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 over with. Right. You know, Um, it's, I'm not going long term anymore. But those, I I really had some, some ups and downs on a department, but I can never say that it was not a good place to work. Mm -hmm. Not some of the best people on earth to ever work with. And Fort Wayne has got some of the best people overall, citizens Mm -hmm. that, um, uh, that you could find anywhere on earth they're good-hearted people with with good morals and they trust their police they trust their their trust themselves and they're 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 just good people Mm -hmm. you know and that's one thing you know i I like nashville well i like outside of nashville (laughs) nashville itself is just nuts (laughs) um oh my god if you've never been there You've got to see the woo what we call the woo woo girls. They have these buses that are decked out, and it's like a school bus. And they'll cut off the back of the school bus, right. and they'll make it a dance floor. And they drive around town with lights and you know music booming. Right, and right. then they hire people hire these for parties, right. and they'll drive up and down the street, and and they'll go by, and the girls will go woo. That's so the woo woo girls, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah And yeah. it's just nuts down there, and. and Nashville has become such the the hub now for, like, bachelorette parties and everybody's moving to Nashville, and it's just crazy.
0: I did not know that.
1: Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Nashville is it, it, Nashville's turned into into the nice place to visit, but you don't want to live there. Right, right. <laughs> you, <know? laughs> right. you don't want that title. Yeah. No. no. So
0: I, I want you to go back. Okay. You said something about uh, working with Fort Wayne, the people in Fort Wayne. Mm-hmm. When everything started to unfold, and I'm sure you were watching this in Fort Wayne, uh, when the marches started, Mm -hmm. George Floyd, when you saw all of that taking place downtown in Fort Wayne, how did that affect you?
1: (sighs) It hit me kind of on a very visceral um, level because when you think that everything, everything that you do is particularly in this day and age where everything is videotaped. Everybody has a phone. Everybody is capturing what's going on. The scrutiny and the stress that these officers are going under, or they're under now, mm-hmm. is something that we didn't have to experience in the 90s and early 2000s. Right. Um, you know, we were, when they came with the car cams and then the body cameras uh, that we had, um... You know, we were, all no, all, big brother. Uh, yeah. But not realizing how much that saved us. Right. How much that documented that what we said happened, happened. You can say what you want. This is what happened, mm-hmm. you know. So when these officers are facing people and having to stand there and be yelled at and, you know, verbally assaulted and and have to maintain that wall, it's it's almost inhuman. It's almost overwhelming that you have to literally shut down that part of your brain that says, I am not putting up with this crap. Mm -hmm. I'm stepping across the line. I'm going to snatch a knot in their head. Well, You have to shut that down and say, I have to take this. I have to be a wall. I have to be stoic. I cannot show any emotion. Which I think is totally disingenuous to the officers because they want the officers to be human to you know they want to humanize the police but when you put them in a situation like that they became they become androids they become machines they cannot be allowed to be human they cannot be allowed to show their emotions and it puts them in i mean i think that you're going to see some long term Damage may be too hard of a word, but I think you're going to see some long-term effects on some of these officers that have had to endure this in their psyche later on because it, it's it's inhuman what they're going through, what mm-hmm. they have to be stand up to do. Right. Um, I mean, when I was on a department, I had um, I had a loss. I had a, a an ex-wife died, and cops being cops you know they're like oh dude man you got off or you know you're gonna pay child support or you don't have to pay support you know all this it's like yeah man i wish my ex would cash in you know and all so you know cop cops can be that's just cop humor okay you know it's, it's it's gallows humor and we understand it and we put up with it and and we play right along in it because that's just how we are it's it's a mentality that we have that seeing the things that you see you have to put up shields to be able to deal with it. And then you deal with it on your own. Mm -hmm. Well, I didn't deal with it on my own. Um, And it started manifesting itself later where I was overly aggressive and was verbally aggressive to people. And then where I had people pull me on the side and say, man, what's going on with you? You know? And it wasn't until I, I actually had to step back and say, I need to talk to somebody and realize that I had never dealt with the grief Hmm. It had shut down, and I had just put it all away. And the uh, it, it, it's funny because the I remember the first time that I actually felt it was I was on the Department Honor Guard. I was uh, in Baton Rouge. I was on the Honor Guard um, with uh, when I was in, in Baton Rouge. I had my training officer and my partner both killed. So, and I was a young rookie. In 1982, when my uh, my FTO was killed in an ambush, um, he went to a uh, a house set on the lake and and uh, or on the river, I'm sorry. And when they went up to check on him, the guy was standing in the door with a shotgun and shot my FTO in the heart and killed him. And um, then my partner, he came on. I trained him in communications and in We worked the streets, and then he went to narcotics, and I went to crime scene, and we were best friends, and he went in on a drug raid and got got killed. And going back to the first shooting I was in, that was on November 21st, 1992, Jerry Simmons, who was my partner, was killed November 21st, 1988. And I remember thinking, when that guy knocked me down, and I got back up and I saw this car coming at me, the one thought in my mind was, This is Jerry's day. I'm not dying today. Hmm. Jerry died today. This is his day. Damn it, I'm living. And it, uh, so when I was with Fort Wayne, I had, was on the honor guard, and we were doing uh, practice. And they were uh, were practicing with the pipe and drums, and they started playing Amazing Grace. And it hit me. Mm -hmm. And I just broke down. I'm like, what's going on here? So I went and talked to somebody and realized I'd never really faced grief. So I had to deal with the whole grieving process. And that was also not too long after uh, Brad Matson died. Oh, yeah. And Brad worked third yep. with us. Yep. And, um, you know, that was a really traumatic. More than the, the trauma to that, more than anything, was um, when his wife allowed us to go in and say goodbye to him when he was in the E.R., And he was on the gurney Mm -hmm. and his head, he had multiple, you know, he had head injuries. So his head was wrapped in a sheet, but he's laying there in the same uniform, bloodstained uniform that you are. Mm -hmm. And that really hits you. That shows your mortality that you can be, that could have been me. Right. So you end up having a little bit of survivor guilt about that. Why did he die and why, you know, all the things that I've been through. Why haven't I died? You know, so you deal with that. And um, so, going back to the the thing with Ferguson and with the uh, George Floyd and all this, there's going to be, and a lot of people deal with things differently, but we were brought up in a different age. Mm-hmm. You know, we were brought up in, and I'm not disparaging anyone that is younger than I am. But they haven't had the life experience that we had as cops mm-hmm. in the 80s and in the 90s and where you could actually go out there and do police work where you could, you know, pardon the phrase, kick ass, take names, mm-hmm. you know? Oh, yeah. And you did what needed to be done and the people were like, yeah, yeah, you know I mean? We went... I was on the CAN team, the community anti-narcotics team, and we stopped a vehicle in an alley one time and... Mm-hmm. We go up to the and it was a pickup truck and it had a cab over it. and inside the the cab there were three guys and they had uh, an AK-47 and a pistol and then we go around the back and there's a guy sitting in the back with a sawed-off shotgun and they have like two pounds of weed and you know all this and we take it out and and the people. From the subdivision are all coming around as we're pulling them out, and we're holding the stuff up, and they're like, eh. and "It's yeah. like this is what we're here for. Right. This is what we're here to do." And they're like, "Yeah, well, that's what we want. We mm-hmm. want you in our town. We want you in our neighborhoods, cleaning it up." Now it's like, "Don't come here, you know. Uh, uh, we got our own stuff. We don't. You're an invading army. No, we're here to try and help you. Right. You know. Right. So I just think that um, what Fort Wayne went through. God bless those officers." They are they are shining examples of how police officers should be because even though you've got some people, a small minority mm-hmm. that is vocal and going off on them, you still have the majority of the people have their back. Oh yeah, you know
0: yeah for the time as you have been on
1: mm-hmm.
0: you've done been through a lot you've seen a yeah. lot. Mm-hmm. And you've done more than a, a lot of cops will ever see. Yeah. And, <laughs> and do you think that is because of the, you kind of hit it, the years you were doing it, there was a lot more activity going on, a lot more, well, how do I say it, bad guys out there? or Because, I mean, you're sitting here telling me this. I didn't even know you were going through some of that stuff. I was in a whole another area yeah. not realizing what you were going through. And I can see, and I really appreciate you sharing the stories, but I can see it still emotionally grips you every once in a while. And that is tough. But I appreciate you sharing that. Do you think there were more bad guys back then, or what do you think was going on?
1: I don't, you know, I don't know if there were more bad, bad guys. Um, I think that there, there are, right now, I think there are some really serious bad actors that are doing maybe worse because the, the, the criminal justice system is so weak on them that they're allowing them to be to, they get caught face a small sentence boom, they're right back out there, it's like so what, you know, I can I, if I get caught, I'm going to go back and it's no no big deal, I'll do six months when we hit people I mean, God, I, I, I say I was going through my scrapbook and all we had uh, uh, like one case of uh, like these serial rapists, heck, they hit this guy with 160 years, you know? He's got 80 to serve before he yeah, yeah. can get out, you yeah. know? Well, I, I did a domestic case where this guy um, uh, committed a domestic battery and he had committed four other ones mm-hmm. and the victims refused to testify because they were afraid of him. And he was—he had guns in the house, he had drugs, he was just a, a bad actor. And And... I was just able to talk to these other victims and get them to come forward, and the guy ended up getting I think it was like 69 years Mm -hmm. on a domestic battery. Mm -hmm. So, so, and and it's nothing about my case, it's nothing about me doing anything, it's about the officers did good work, and they brought it to the prosecutor who did good work, and they hit these people hard, and they put them away, because they knew that it was going to make an impact on on the neighborhoods and on society. Here it's more appeasement. Here it's more like, well, we can't show that we're being prejudiced against a certain group demographic, or, you know, well, we can't do this because we didn't do this. You know, instead of being across the board justice, blind justice, it's picking and choosing. So, but we had some bad guys. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had some really some families, career families oh, yes. oh, in yeah. Fort Wayne that we were dealing with. And, um, and we were steadily chopping them away. Right. And, you know, the street crimes unit we had, uh, mm-hmm. back then, those guys, they were heavy hitters and you had to be aggressive. You had to be, you had to take it to take the fight to them. And, um, and you know, I mean, it's funny because I would show up and I was the smallest guy there, five, six, 150 pounds, and there was like, you know, Al Davis and yeah, yeah. you know, and all these guys, and you are like, I don't like you, and yeah. they're like, Yep, it's on. So, <laughs> so you know, you just had to, you just had to handle up. But it's we had some real. I mean, because you know, we're talking about in '90 in Fort Wayne, sitting in the hub between Detroit, uh, Chicago, Indianapolis, mm-hmm. you had all that. Drugs running through there. Yeah. For a while there, we were having the Crips and Bloods, and having mm-hmm. these drive-bys, you know, and all this. And it was a really, really hard time for Fort Wayne, um, crime-wise. Mm-hmm. But you had, you know, what's the thing about? There's times when hard officers have to do the things that needs to be done to solve the problem. You know, so you had officers that were out there willing to sit on surveillance and willing to work, you know, get a little bit of evidence and work the case all the way through so that they had a good, solid case. So when they took it to the prosecutor, like, we don't need anything else. We got them, you know? Mm-hmm. And, and like I say, I'm not putting, not saying anything bad against the officers these detectives. They had, they do one heck of a job, but they're handicapped and they're, they're constrained because of societal norms and, other agencies that don't give them support that they can you know so were there bad actors back then yeah they were some heavy hitters mm-hmm. there were some, some heinous criminals that we put away um, but I also think that now there are a lot more bad actors because they have the opportunity mm-hmm. the repeat opportunity to be bad
0: Would you, if you had a chance to do it over again in a heartbeat <laughs> <laughs> even today. Yep, even today. It was it was that it was that uh, pleasing for you. It
1: was that satisfying because above all my credo was make a difference. You've got to make a difference. And whether it was unlocking someone's car mm-hmm. or whether it was um you know taking a guy to jail that had um uh, you know multiple repeat offender um you make a difference in someone's life. And I believe that, you know, not everybody's a not everybody's a career criminal. Not everybody is the, you know, needs to be warehouse for fifty years. I believe that people are salvageable. And when I was a detective, when I would do interviews with people, you know, that was one of the things that that I would come across to the person I was interviewing, is that I believe that everyone's salvageable. Mm-hmm. People make mistakes. And give them the opportunity to give me something to use. Because I would right. tell them, you be straight up and honest with me. I will go to the prosecutor with my case and I will tell them, yes, he did A, B, and C, but he was straight up and he told me this. Mm-hmm. So I think that's something we need to look at. Right. You know, if it's a career dirtbag. <laughs> Bye, you know. <laughs> but if it's somebody who makes a mistake, like th- there was this one kid that was involved with a, a, a serial burglar and he was going around and got roped into it, you know. And this guy did like 50 burglaries and the kid was along with him for about half of them. And once I sat down and talked to him, he, um, he gave it all up. He mm-hmm. took us around to all the places and everything like that. And so we ended up hitting the other guy big time, and, and the kid ended up getting a reduced sentence, and then mm-hmm. after that I saw him two, three years later, he's like a good member of society right, and, right, you know, he right. walked up shook my hand, said, hey, I appreciate everything you did for me, those sort of thing. Uh, you know, when you have something like that, that's very satisfying mm-hmm. um, and, you know being brought up in the 60s I was a big sci-fi comic book guy, you know so, you had Superman who'd say I will not kill you had Batman who say, "You know, I could kill you, but then I'd be no better than you." You <laughs> have Spider Man with your great power comes great responsibility, yeah, and you yeah. Captain Kirk that I don't believe in the no win scenario. You know, <laughs> so I kind of would take those to, to to heart that you know these are kind of baseline things. I'm not going to kill. If I did, I'd be no better than you. And I, as a police officer, that's great power, and you have great responsibility for everything mm-hmm. you do. Mm-hmm. But I don't believe in the no win. Scenario. I believe that there's ways that you can succeed.
0: It's funny so. you, you say that because I was going to ask you where did you come up with that make a difference. It had to be something that was before you became a policeman. Right. That didn't right. happen in it's the all, academy. You know,
1: <laughs> I was doing freaking Miranda rights in junior high. You know, Adam <laughs> at, at twelve. I'd sit there and I'd <laughs> that's write right, them down. That's right, you yeah. know, <laughs> and uh, um, uh, and it, it, it's funny because when I was working to prison in, in Baton Rouge, they would bring people in. And uh, the prison, the jail and the prison were the same building. So you bring somebody in and they're like, okay, well, this is what we got to do. You've got the right to remain silent. You know, and they got like, so mm. I'm like, I'd have a couple other deputies like, yo, dude, hit it. And they, they start going. <laughs> <laughs> I say, you got the right to remain silent. Did you feel that way? But we take the court and anything you say. you got a right to an attorney, a mouthpiece of lawyer. And if you can't afford one, we get one for you. And they're like, okay, I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> well, judge... Ken Scheidenberger had me do that in open court one day, because he said, "Hey, I heard you do a Miranda rap." I'm like, no. <laughs> and I did it, and it was it was fun. But it was something no. that you know, you
0: know. Scheidenberger wasn't right anyway. No, he wasn't right.
1: <laughs> Guy. Oh my God, I love Ken Scheidenberger. Yeah. Yeah. He, he was good. Well, he was good. Uh, oh, there there are a plethora of Scheidenberger stories anyway. Yeah. Okay.
0: But, so, uh, but
1: yeah, that I I, I came up with. You know, my um, when I was brought up, my dad was um, he was handicapped. My dad, when he was a young man, he had lost his right arm and leg in a train accident. Mm-hmm. So he had amputated, so he was a self-taught accountant, and he brought up five kids. And you know, we all turned out to be you know, none of us went to jail or anything right, like right, that. Right. But he he would just instill in us that you know, don't let anything get you down. Don't let anyone tell you can't do anything because, look at me, and uh, whatever you do, make sure that it reflects on you, it reflects on the family, it reflects well. And that, and from that I got, yeah, you got to make a difference. You've got to do something that touches. You know, it's the whole thing about you take a pebble and you throw it in the water, and the, the ripples that go out mm. touch the shore and they touch everything else. Right. So you're that pebble. So you've got to make a difference in whatever you do. While, so. yeah, well, that's good. You had good parents, see? <laughs> I had great parents. My yeah. mom, actually, 91, she died last month. And um, she left me a notebook, my life. It was a, a, a notebook that she uh, was, was writing out her mm-hmm. entire life story. And my sister gave it to me, and so I'm writing it now in in book form. To um, And I'm going to give a copy of it to my sisters and brothers and her family and everything mm-hmm. like this. It's going to be an internal thing. But it's interesting to to read her life and to see, uh, because she had a tough life. She grew up in the Depression and Mm -hmm. everything. And and, uh, so I had good parents, had really good upbringing. And um, my brothers and sisters are all really good people. So I'm proud of them. Well, I
0: I can see that. (laughs) I can see that. That's good. Now, with all that going on, we're in this career, we're in your crazy life. Did you all of a sudden say, I want to write a book? (laughs) <laughs> and how did that all come to be?
1: <laughs> you know, it it all started what I was talking about about that serial killer case. Uh-huh. And I carried that case around, literally carried that case around with me for years. And in uh when when nine eleven hit, I got in touch with um I was in Port Wayne and been here for ten years or so. So I hadn't been in touch with a lot of people I knew in Baton Rouge. So I started calling all my old friends just to be in touch, you know, touch with them. And I started getting real nostalgic and started thinking about things. And I ended up having a conversation with someone that uh, kind of tickled, tickled my, my writing <laughs> uh, abilities. It, it was just a, a small conversation. I really won't get into it, but it, it was enough of a, of a seed for me to be able to come up with a story. And so I came up with an idea about a, um, uh, a a detective who starts his career out, and he starts out as a cop, and you know, the patrolman, and he goes into crime scene, and he's working crime scene. There's a ser- series of killings, and this is in the early 1980s. So the whole term serial killer did not come into vogue until 82, 83. Because the Behavioral Science Unit, um, started by John Douglas and Robert Ressler, FBI, they coined the phrase in the late 80s. Or, I'm sorry, late 70s. So the, the early 80s, it was just coming into vogue. It was more like, um, uh, what did they call them? Um, before they called them serial, they called them um, series. Series murders. And um, so, I, I had this idea about a serial killer, and the character his, his name is Jack LaFleur. Um, real Cajun name, you know. <laughs> so his fiance becomes one of, of the victims. And he comes into a loggerhead with the sheriff at the time, because the sheriff one thing that I learned when I was working with a sheriff's department is that you are at the whim and mercy of the sheriff. If he comes in, doesn't like the way your hair is parted, You're gone. And art... uh, Louisiana politics is an art form, you know. And so is making money. Mm -hmm. So, the sheriff every year had a... uh, They had to um, put in their budget to the sheriff's association. And you had to show that you were in the black, even if it was a dollar. You had to show that you were uh, in the black for your agency. And our department was always hundreds of thousands of dollars before everyone else. Now, we were a bigger department but it was kind of a social thing, you know. So in in the story, the feds start paying money to the department for all of these cases to help them with personnel mm-hmm. and, you know. So the more cases you have, the more money you bring in, whether it's tied into something else or not. And my character goes head to head with them and loses, so he quits and he moves away. And he moves away to a town called Camp Simmons, Indiana, which Camp Simmons I named after my partner, Jerry Simmons. Um, and it's, like, located between here and Fort Wayne. It's just kind of, you know, off the way. Mm-hmm. And um, so he's with the department there. And um, some things happen to him there on the department. And uh, while he's there, he gets a phone call about a the killer that stopped when he left the department, sixteen years before, now they're starting again, and he's the only one left. Can you come back and help us? Hmm. So I'm like, okay, that's the basis of a story, and I fleshed it out, but it just really didn't didn't do well. So I switched and I wrote a science fiction novel. Yay! It came out. Yay! <laughs> it's <was> terrible. So, <laughs> but I started understanding how to write, uh. <laughs> and I, I took some writing courses, and there was a, um, a Former resident, his name's Les Edgerton. He's a local author, and a really great guy. And um, he looked over and said, "You got potential here. You know, you 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 got a good storytelling, but you just got to get it in a good. You got to have a hook. You got to have something. You know." So I put all this away, and then I wrote another one. I was at the time I was working at Glenbrook. I was doing the the security directing uh, the security there for the police officers. So, I wrote another one about a terrorist bombing in a mall. And it was pretty intense. But it still wasn't. Yeah, that's okay. It's done. It, I, it needs a little bit of tweaking. But then I started thinking back to what I mentioned before about my uncle who was, uh, worked at the Secret Service. Mm-hmm. And um, he started in Austin, Texas. Then he went to the Secret Service. Then he went back to Austin. Then he went back to the DEA. Well, when he was with. The uh, JFK and LBJ uh, guard, when Kennedy was killed, Lyndon Johnson became president, and he grew up in Austin, and they knew each other. They didn't Mm -hmm. get along. Mm -hmm. So that's why he he left. We went to Austin, and he was in Austin in 1966 when Charles Whitman, who was a a Marine, uh, took a footlocker full of weapons up to the top of the bell tower on the Mm -hmm. University of Texas and killed 17 people, wounded another 30. And my uncle was crime scene investigator on that. He had to photograph the bodies and everything like that. So I had these really two great events, and uh, him him that was linked to him, And then it, 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 t- it ties back to in also in 76. 66 is when the Texas Tower incident happened. In 76, uh, they made a TV movie in Baton Rouge where they used our state capital as the Texas Tower, mm-hmm. and Kurt Russell played... Right. Uh, uh, Charles Whitman, and we would go down every day and watch him film, and we got to meet Kurt Russell and Ned Beatty, and you know all these character actors and all that. And that story just resonated with me, so I'm like, I've got a story there. So I did up, I, I, I did an outline of it, and then I decided that okay, I could write it as just that, but I need to have something to be able to draw my character into it just Jack LaFleur. So I did a present-day story where they find a body that's been buried for 50 years in in Camp Simmons, of all places. Uh, And it's a Secret Service agent that was in Dealey Plaza in sixty-three. He's able to determine that. Hmm. So that brings us back to the assassination and everything that happens there. And then he finds out that there's an attempted assassination on the current president. And they're having the convention in Cincinnati. So he goes to Cincinnati. Uh, and there's, you know, government intrigue. You can't, you don't know who to trust, you know, mm-hmm. that, that sort of thing. So he goes there. And I was able to incorporate, um, when I had worked at, in Cincinnati at the Hilton, I was able to incorporate the landscape of the hotel and all that into the story. And all these things, you get to, like, you know, you... you you go to different things, or something pops up, and you're like, "Oh, I like that. Let me put that in here. Yeah, yeah. Oh, I like that. Let me see how I can tie that." You know. So I had all these different things. I went to Dallas. I went to Austin. I I got to to tour the um, the old police station that um, where Oswald was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was it's shut down, and they're renovating it, getting it back to 1963 uh, standards, so they can open it as a tourist event. And, um, but this officer that was there said, come on up, you know, I'll take you behind the scenes. So we went behind the fence and he took me in the building and he showed, this is where Oswald was killed. Here's the X on the floor. Here's where the photographer that took the picture. Here's where Ruby was coming down, you know, and he took me up to the jail cell and he took took me out to Dealey Plaza and he took me over to where JD Tippett was killed. And I just had this great immersion into this whole thing. And then I went to Austin and I got to go up to the top of the tower and they showed me where, uh, where uh, Whitman, all the different places where he shot. And I was able to look through the ports and see mm-hmm. what he saw and went to his house and, you know, and just really all this stuff, it, it percolates. And then I read everything I could get my hands on, on, on. And then I just got to a point where it's like, enough. Now I got to distill it. I have like, you know, 40 pages of notes. And then you just set up an outline. And then you pick and choose what you want, and then you decide how it's going to play in. And I have like 20 pages of notes that I didn't use, because when when I wrote after those other books, I felt like I had to do this story since it's a historic uh, event. I had to make sure that I did it right. Mm -hmm. So I wrote it in what what, what's Glenn Glenn Beck wrote several books, and he used the term faction which is facts mixed with fiction. So I would take a fact and write it out, and then where there was a gray area, I'd put my fiction in. Like, just for example, one thing in a book, and we're talking about Strawberry Concrete. Yeah, yeah, I was waiting for
0: you to tell the title (laughs) of the book.
1: (laughs) It's called Strawberry Concrete. The title Strawberry Concrete plays into... um, it, I, I really don't want to give it away because if I tell it what it is, it'll really it well, no, play into Okay, okay, don't. But them. it's but it's <laughs> it has to do with with um, a trigger. It's able to trigger someone. It's it's something that you don't hear every day, okay. at least not in the '60s. Now today, you can go down to Dairy Queen and get a a strawberry concrete. You know, and it's like ah, he tried to book about an ice cream cone, uh, <laughs> and I'm like, gosh, why didn't I go with strawberry? dog, you know, I don't know. But, 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 but like, that just blew me away. Get a concrete. I'm like, no! Stop it! Yeah. Um, but, um, so, um, for example, Charles Whitman, um, he was a uh, Marine, and he went to the University of Texas on a Officer uh, Candidate School um, scholarship. They were sending the Marine Corps paid for him to go to college there. Well, while he was there, he ended up poaching a deer, gutted it in his dorm room in the shower, and he got arrested You know for doing that. He got caught poaching a deer. Well, that's fact. You look up that anywhere. But there's nowhere in history does it say where he poached the deer from. Right. So that's where the fiction comes in. He poached it off Lyndon Johnson's ranch. <laughs> and that's how I get the two of them to meet. Ah. So little things like that, you know, little little breadcrumbs like that you're able to tie into things and actual you know, use actual conversations mm-hmm. actual events that you're able to you know, you're saying but I'm writing as the guy standing behind you who's hearing this mm. and now I'm, you know, turning to somebody else saying, uh, you know. Yeah. So that's the whole thing about writing. When you're writing historic fiction, you have to have the facts have got to be documented and they've got to be right, or your credibility is shot. You know, um, so I really got into the and and like I say, the, the the main story, the main crux of the story is the the finding of the the uh, the Secret Service agent, and then the whole investigation about that. I'm I'm all about. The forensics. I'm all about, you know, finding the DNA, finding the fingerprints, finding, you know, like they find a fingerprint on a, a baby food jar that's very small. So I mm-hmm. figure, well, it's a, it might be like a partial, like the half. Well, yeah. no, it's a baby's print. And they, when they run it, they find now that the baby who's now 53 is in prison in Plainfield, <laughs> you know, for a, a bunch of crimes. But, you know... So now you've got this thing from fifty years ago, and you're tying it to this guy that's in prison now. Right. So um, I just I, I love the forensic aspect of it. So I have a really good um, uh, pathologist that a character that I have in there that's real smart and is able to look for things. Um, so the the, the story, um, tie you know the, the the whole story has the, the four story. About Jack LaFleur finding his body, finding out about the attempted at assassination on the president, and trying to stop that. Mm-hmm. While the secondary story is what happens, what really happened, really, in the the, the Kennedy assassination, mm-hmm. uh, Marilyn Monroe, the Texas Tower incident, and then I tie into the um, uh, in uh, nineteen seventy one seventy two. There was a shooting in New Orleans where um, a, uh, a, a sniper was on top of Howard Johnson's uh, hotel. And this guy had killed like eight New Orleans police officers over a week's time. Mm. And they found him. He, he went up to this hotel. He set the hotel on fire. He went up to the roof and was sniping people. Right. And uh, he ended up sending a helicopter gunship in and just laid waste <laughs> to him. But I tied that incident in. Too. so I have all these historic events that tie into a totally fictionized story so um, it's um, it took me about a year and a half to write and a lot of that was research and a lot of that was um, uh, and, and even that uh, I know I see you're looking at the book the title <laughs> the, the cover there yeah. I had to be very careful about that because there the two pictures that are on there, Uh, I have a a really good friend of mine who's an artist Mm -hmm. uh, named Paul Harrington and he did the cover for me. Um, He's a Fort Wayne local. He, um, He did the artwork but he couldn't use the original photos. So he had to change things so that it would be an original photo. Like... JFK's arm up waving like that. Right, right. There's no pictures of him. All the pictures of him with him with his arm like this. Right, So right. with his arm up like that, that changes it. Mm-hmm. On the top part of it is the Texas Tower. I'm seeing it. And that's from an actual photo, but the smoke from I, the rifle is changed. That's actually, the, place. the first
0: thing I looked at. Yeah. It's funny I saw that I go, Yeah. okay. And the
1: original <laughs> picture has it over further to the right, and there's smoke coming up, poof, from there. Okay. And um, I don't know how much, uh, just for the, what happened with, the, the main thing about the Texas Tower incident, and not only was it, it it tied to my family, my family was involved, but it was actually the first, uh, the impetus for SWAT. Because right. what happened That's when, right. uh, it's just like a 30, 27-story building. Mm-hmm. And the Austin PD, all they had was shotguns and pistols, 38, mm-hmm. round, uh, 38 pistols. So you had all these farmers and hunters started showing up on the University of Texas with their deer rifles, shooting at Whitman to keep him pinned down. Right. Well, the cops had to go in. They ran into the pawn shops and the gun shops mm-hmm. and grabbed these high-powered rifles to fire back. And they realized after Whitman had done the shooting that they needed something to be able to combat something. So they started special weapons and tactics. So that was kind of the kind of a backdoor of uh, 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 introduction to uh, to SWAT and that's why I included that that story mm-hmm. in the book um,
0: so now when you went on the tour were there still bullet holes up there
1: yeah so uh, they're still like uh, in the um, uh, the concrete up there mm-hmm. is like chips right yeah. out of there um, there's um I end up uh, like when I, I went to tour of the of the police station in, in Dallas there um, Redoing the cell that Oswald was in, mm-hmm. so the guy gave me a piece of the floor. So I'm like, oh, cool, you know. So I got a piece of piece of the floor that Oswald actually stood on, and um, uh, but the um, his house of, of Charles Whitman's house is still there in Austin. People live there, you know. I'm sure they get. I drove up there, and, and the guy was outside like, here's another one, you know. <laughs> People go by and take pictures, you know, yeah, yeah. and uh, over the and, and you know I. I I've always had a fascination with the, the Kennedy assassination because of my uncle and all. And, um, but uh, Matt Newbauer, who I, I think he's a PBA president mm-hmm. now. right? Matt Neubauer instituted on third shift when we worked. On November 22nd, he had the J.D. Tippett Memorial Barbecue. So we'd go out to Frankie Park yeah, yeah. at 3 in the morning, <laughs> and we'd be grilling hot dogs and stuff, and... Hoist the Coke to J.D. Tippett, the, the you know the, the forgotten cop that Oswald killed. So that was yeah, how yeah. we remembered. So uh, yeah, it, it was a great thing. Talk about, I said it, I I worked with some great guys. Yeah, <laughs> worked with some great guys and gals on there, <laughs> department. So we had good times.
0: So you said it took you a year and a half to do this. It took book. me a
1: year and a half to do that, and that was through revisions and uh, rewrites, and I probably rewrote it f- five times, um, either add things or take things away. There was. Huge sections of it that. You know, you go in there and you're like, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. And then you read it, it's like, crap, <laughs> this is terrible. It, now i got to figure out a way to get back to where I was. <laughs> no, pull that out, you know. It's so great when you can just do it on a Word document and zoop, delete, you know. But stuff like that, I, you know, I put it in another file, keep it. Um, but, yeah, there's um, – uh, took me about a year and a half. And then I started looking for a publisher. And there's actually a publisher out of uh, Nashville, um, Indiana called Pennit publishing and um, they took it right away and uh, uh, went through the edits and then got it published on all the major you know uh, Amazon and Barnes and Noble uh, they did it on ebook they did paperback and then we just finished up audiobook at the end of last month end of June. And uh, so it's out an audio book. And that, was, and that was an interesting thing. When you have the book and then you listen to someone reading it, mm-hmm. and someone's a real professional reading, it really draws you in. Did and, you get, did you get and, Morgan Freeman to do it for you? I'm sorry?
0: Did you get Morgan Freeman to do you it? You know, I tried, uh-huh.
1: but uh, he said he was scheduled to be on this podcast at, during that time. So yeah, yeah. He I canceled I, I, wonder, he? I was
0: wondering what <laughs> he was going to say. Yeah.
1: <laughs> I actually, Pee Wee Herman was my first voice. <laughs> It's okay. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I
0: know you just didn't do that. I'm on the phone. <laughs> <So. laughs> uh, <laughs> you were saying? Yeah,
1: I can't remember what
0: I was saying now.
1: You know, oh. the guy that that I end up going through. It's funny because they send you these auditions uh. for um uh for uh, a narrator, and it's like one guy was like. Then JFK turned and looked at his wife. That's it. You know, and I'm like, yeah. who is this, William Shatner? Yeah, mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's just what I thought. I don't understand. <laughs> so, I, you know, I, I said I wanted somebody that kind of has a little bit of a, a Cajun accent, somebody that can do Texas, you know. Yeah, yeah. So they ended up finding me this, like, 65-year-old guy. and Great. He's got a great voice. Oh, so, geez. but um, That's funny. Yeah, it's fun. Yeah. Um, so, so I got, got that. That one's done. Uh, the next book is is um, called "The Unkindness Cut of All," which is the serial killer case mm-hmm. uh, that I've, I've got it where I want it, and that will be the next one. And um, I have a. I decided I was going to write a. Um, uh, well, I've got like six books that are that are outlined and ready to go. Mm-hmm. And I was going to do this, this little, like sci-fi thing about this, being a geek that I am, you know, um, about a guy that invents time travel to go back and he buys things like the first issue of Superman mm. and brings it forward and sells it for $4 million and that's right. how he makes his money. You know? right. So I'm like, oh, that's cool. That's a cool idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Yeah. But you know what? If I'm going to do that, then I've got to figure it out. <sighs> 1938 is when the first issue was published. The guys lived in Cleveland, Ohio. So, and since I'm a right crime, the guy's got to die. Yeah. You know? yeah, 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 So I'm like, okay. So the guy dies. So I got to figure <laughs> out why. So, so let me do some research on Cleveland, Ohio. You know what was going on then? And worst mistake ever, because in 1935 to 1938, <clears throat> Cleveland, Ohio had a serial killer that killed 12 people that they know of. Uh, nine were I mean, sorry, three were only identified. Nine were never identified. He cut off the head, limbs, and they would only find the torso. So it was called the torso murders, or the the butcher of Kingsman or Kingsbury Row. Mm-hmm. Well, the investigator, the lead investigator on it, was Elliot Ness, the original untouchable. Really, he had taken over as the public safety director, and I'm like, this is good. <laughs> this is I I, I like I, I like serial killer cases, you know, and uh, so. I, I came up with this idea that I could use this time travel element and tie it to the serial killer. And um, and then I find out, I mean, I'm, I'm tapping away, tapping away, and there's a book that comes up about the torso murders. And this guy um, uh, wrote this book, and he is a script writer and he was a uh, a uh, um, cartoonist that did mm-hmm. Dick Tracy and, mm-hmm. and all this and I'm like I wonder if he's on Facebook <laughs> but sure enough I found him I actually sent him a message and said hey I'm thinking about writing a book I understand you wrote a book about that he goes yeah here I'll send you a copy sends me an autographed copy of it and I'm reading through it and I'm like wow this is cool so this is a really great story mm-hmm. um, it, it, it's really tragic what happens with Elliot Ness because he never solves it and it destroys his career and he ends up being penniless and Drunk and he, his fam, his family can't even bury him. They don't have any money, so they have to borrow money to have him cremated, and then they lose his ashes for thirty years. And uh, you know, so it's, it's just this, this tragic story about Elliot Ness and all. And it's like, oh, I got to write this. So, so, oh, wait,
0: so that actually happened. That else? all actually happened. I yeah. did not know that.
1: Yep. He um, it, it's um, uh, he he coasted on the whole thing about. Um, um, Al Capone, right, right, and all he made all of his, and actually the book that was written, The Untouchables, mm-hmm. came out after he died, so he never saw any royalties of it. Ah. And, um, uh, but you know, they felt a lot of that was was built up. But yeah, it was a tragic story about mm-hmm. him. But it makes for a really great novel if you're able to, to you know, right. to, to tie it into things. So I've got that one is I've got that one outlined, and. One of the benefits about writing is you get to meet some incredible writers. Mm-hmm. I was talking about Les Edgerton. Les has written a dozen books or so, and he writes he writes crime books. He writes uh, how-to books. He wrote a book called Finding Your Voice, talking about how to write as yourself and not try and be another John Grisham or mm-hmm. Stephen King whatever. And that's kind of like my Bible I go to when I, when I want to read to bring me back. But um, there was an author by the name of Bob Stewart, who's out of Texas, that um, uh, was a friend of, of Les's, and he asked me if I could help him with a book he was writing. Um, <clears throat> it took place in New Orleans and he says, well, I know you're from Baton Rouge, but you know the dialect, you know the, you know, everything. So I'm like, sure. So I get in touch with him. He says, I have this detective in there. He's a black detective that um, I need to know, I need to know whatever, whatever you want to do, tell me about him. So I'm like, okay. So I read through it and and he's writing dialogue like, yay, my brother, what is up, my man? And I'm like, nah, man, that ain't, nah, nah, nah. That ain't happening. <laughs> so oh I get this character and I read through it. And I and this was when I was working in the detective bureau. And I got to sit down with um, oh, uh, some of the, the detectives in the uh, detective bureau. And uh, some of the black detectives. They said, guys, read over this. And tell me, what do you think this guy ought to look like? And they were all throwing in stuff, you know? Uh-huh. Oh, dude, I'd have him wearing a purple fedora, <laughs> you know? And, uh, the, uh, uh, right. uh, you know, uh, chewing on a toothpick all the time. His yeah. head shaved. Mm. Yeah. So, you know, the, it's, all this stuff, I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, uh, Bob just said, write it. You go ahead and you write this wherever the scenes are. Right. You put in his dialogue, your description of him. And so I make him up as a, he went to, um, you know, he grew up in outside of New Orleans and he went to UNO as a, a, um, uh, he was a defensive tackle and, you know, big guy, big burly guy. And uh, uh, he went into law enforcement and then he ended up getting corrupted Mm -hmm. and uh, he turned out to be like an enforcer. And, um, but he had like this, this moral code, you know, and, um, and all this information was from all these other detectives that gave me this and so we went ahead and wrote it and the book is called Alias Thomas a Cat and it's published and it went really well. And it it's it's kind of a strange book. It's about a about a guy that if you know anything about New Orleans or about Louisiana, they have like the blessing of the pets. Okay. They they bring your pet in mm-hmm. and the priests yep, bless, yep, you know. Yep. It's like, like they had the blessing of the boats, the shrimp boats. Yeah. You know well, in the course of what happens, this detective is there and this, guy, this lady and her cat, his girlfriend, and a crucifix or something falls on him, and they end up switching personalities. So the cat is now the man and the man is stuck in the cat. You'd have to read the story. It actually works. It actually works. <laughs> but um, so we wrote this book and it came out and went, went, went real well. And then, and then Bob passed a few years ago. But... We talked about doing a sequel before he died. And I got a hold of his family and said, would you mind if I wrote the sequel and dedicated about it? No, go right ahead. Mm-hmm. So that's another book, and I've got that one outlined. Um, and there was another detective out of Las Vegas, uh, Brad, uh, Brad Nickel, Bradley Nickel. He worked the biggest theft case in Nevada history. There was a burglar that, eight hours a day, that's all he did was burglaries. Mm-hmm. And he had... Like they found he had like 25 storage sheds filled with millions of dollars worth of st- right. stuff. And that's, he would sell it and that's how he lived. Well, they caught the guy. And while this guy was in prison, he put a contract on Brad, on the prosecutor, on the judge, hired a hitman to kill him. And um, so he's telling, we're at the Leeds Online conference mm-hmm. and he's telling us his story. And after I came up, I said, dude, you got to write this in a book. He said, I have no idea what to do. I said, I know people. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so yeah, I got yeah. him in touch with some people who got him in touch with an agent and we'd go back and forth and help him write, you know, and he, long story short, he wrote this book called Repeat Offender and in 2015, it was the number one true crime book in the nation on uh, the um, uh, New York Times bestseller list, end up making a documentary out of it and hmm. I think they're making a movie with Dennis Quaid or something in it, <coughs> so, it ended up, he uh, he really, took off you know so i had the opportunity to be there on the ground floor to kind of help him you know along the way and uh to get him started he, he did all the work i just kind of pushed him the right direction you know right so you,
0: you wonder where do you find all this time <laughs> to write these books
1: i mean i work about well some of the jobs that i do like one of the um one of the jobs that we have is there's so much construction in um uh going on in nashville mm-hmm. that there's always construction sites so sometimes they have places where they need somebody there overnight so you go into a fence in area you lock the gate and you make your passes through there but it's like for six at night to six in the morning
0: right
1: so i have 12 hours where i could sit there and write and i could knock out 12 hours i can knock out about five chapters uh like 80 pages and i'm a uh, yeah oh yeah, yeah so yeah, for every 3 yeah. words i correct two you know <laughs> <laughs> you know so um but i i've gotten to where i can write and i have to be careful because my fingers can't keep up with my mind what mm-hmm, i want to do mm-hmm. but i spend a lot of time uh when i do that um we um up until recently we had our grandkids living with us and so it was very very hard to find any time then, mm-hmm. but since they've been away, I've been able to you know, it's just the wife and I in this big house, so I'm able to go up at my desk and, and write so, um, but it, it's tough, it really is, and that's kind of one of the reasons why it took so long, because I'd have to write in 12 hour, you know right. gigs, maybe twice a week or so, but I can get a lot of stuff done
0: So why so. haven't you figured out to the, the, set it up on your computer where you can talk and it types?
1: From this I thing. can, but then it doesn't understand Cajun That's <laughs> <laughs> <You know? laughs> I'll start I, sometimes like if I start writing like I'm in Louisiana I'll start talking like a Cajun you yeah, know and yeah, the, yeah. the computer's like stop <laughs> I have no idea what you're talking about.
0: You know, believe it or not I did not know where your accent was from until now
1: <laughs> I I did yep. not know that and it it's funny because it it you know I'd be up in Fort Wayne yeah <laughs> And then, as soon as I'd cross into Mississippi and start going down to Louisiana, I start slipping right into it, you know. And uh, <laughs> all
0: those years, I-, I knew you had it, and I just like, okay, well, I have no. And clue. it would
1: slip out every now and again, you know. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, uh, it, it it it's funny because I get around my sisters and and uh-huh. brothers and all that, and and you know, the whole your whole speech pattern. And I, that's one thing I've always been able to. Like, I would go to to Alabama. Like when I was when I first started in, in, in Fort Wayne, my uh-huh. first month, they put me in undercover narcotics working in the sewer department, oh, and I was James Austin from Birmingham, Alabama.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So <laughs> I had to talk like I was from Alabama, you know. So I I pick up on these dialects, or and it's funny because in the South you got Alabama, then you got Mississippi, mm-hmm. then you got Arkansas, <laughs> and Tennessee a little bit higher. Uh-huh, you yeah, know? yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> it, it, When I start talking, and and I'm terrible about that because people think you're mocking them. Because somebody come up and say, "Hey, buddy, uh, uh, you tell me what they said." Yeah, buddy, uh, over this, (laughs) where you from? Well, I'm from New Jersey. Really? You're from New Jersey? You know, and it's like, why are you talking like that? you from Jersey? No. Why are you talking like that? I don't know. You you just kind of fall into the pattern of people, and, you know, it makes them feel comfortable. You know, They're they're with their kind. Oh,
0: my goodness. So, is this the first, is this the actual first book you have out?
1: That's the first book I have out. Um,
0: All the other ones are just in holding, on deck. uh,
1: The the unkindest cut is. I should be finished by – definitely finished by the end of this month, and it'll go to the publisher. Mm-hmm. So then it'll be about a four-month turnaround. So it should be up before the first of the year. Okay. And then um, I have um, uh, actually set up a website, the uh, writerscottmorales.com, and um, <clears throat> I, I do a blog on there, which – You doing a blog? Mm, I don't know. Uh, Today's Tuesday, and it's raining. I feel sad. (laughs) Who cares? Come on, tell me something I can use. (laughs) Yeah.
0: So, how do people find this book?
1: Yeah, you can find it on Amazon. Strawberry
0: concrete. How do they find it?
1: Strawberry concrete by Scott Morales. Uh M O R A L E S. (laughs) More or less, that's me. Um, It's uh, it's available on Amazon. It's available on Barnes and Noble, Target. most of the outlets there, you can even get it in several foreign languages. It's been translated in Swedish and German and, uh, um, I think, uh, Portuguese. Yeah. But there's several different, um, hey, translations. It's, it's of an Olympic it. year. Um,
0: we, we need it. So, what's that? The Olympics are going on, so they need yeah, this. Yeah, I know, really. They need to
1: read that. <laughs> if you like historic fiction, I so said there's a lot of history in there. Um, it's uh, it's my take on it. Now, understand, this is fiction. I am not saying that these things happen. This is just a theory that I came up with. I mean, everybody has their own theories about the Kennedy assassination. This is mine, and but the facts that are in there, and I'll just I'll just give I'll tell you right now, as a spoiler, I believe Linda Johnson was involved in in JFK's death, and the reason being, as a detective, one of the things that you look for when you're trying to find a suspect is who benefits from it, who has the opportunity, and I forget the third one. There's three of them.
0: (laughs) So that's why they didn't catch him. That's
1: right. But there are three incidents in there. Um, But a couple of them are uh, John Kennedy requested Lyndon Johnson go to South Vietnam to talk to the president about troops and about uh, what to do about Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So Johnson goes to the president, and he talks to him, and the president of uh, Vietnam says, look, we need you to send troops. We want you all to send soldiers over here to help us. So he takes that back to Kennedy, and Kennedy says, "Um, I'm not real comfortable with that. I don't mind sending advisors, Mm -hmm. but I really don't want to get us involved in a civil war. Right. Well, at the time, Lyndon Johnson's wife, Lady Bird Johnson, was a main stockholder in Bell Huey Helicopters. So you have a war, guess who's going to provide the helicopters, yeah. Bell Huey. So it's it was a money-making thing for him to have a war. Mm-hmm. Now, he ended up backfiring on him, he only stayed in office for one term. He finished out Kennedy's term. He stayed in office one term uh, because he couldn't deal with Vietnam just you know, it was devastating for the country and it was extremely wearing on him. So that's an opportunity. That's a motive. Also, one thing that I found, which totally blew me away, that I did not realize, was on November 22nd, 1963, at 1 o'clock in the afternoon, Washington time, a Senate subcommittee was going to open up an investigation on Lyndon Johnson for voter fraud, for um, some agricultural improprieties that were happening down in Texas. And he was looking to be either impeached or criminally charged. Well, November twenty second, 1963, at 12.30, JFK is assassinated, and it goes away like it never happened. So there's a couple of different things that lead you to believe that he would have definitely benefited from... Hmm. And and Lyndon Johnson was not a well man. Lyndon Johnson, in 1955, had a massive heart attack. He smoked three packs of cigarettes a day. He was obese. He drank, you know... every day he drank and he believed and this is this comes straight from my uncle who was there in the administration he believed in what he thought was the kennedy dynasty that jfk be president for 8 years bobby be president mm-hmm. for 8 years teddy be president for 8 years so you have 24 years of kennedys and he'd never lived to see the presidency and he was all about power to the point that his sister linda johnson's sister was a prostitute who came up mysteriously? Died just under mysterious circumstances because she was beginning to wear down his campaign, and it was uh-huh. looking very bad on him. Um, and there were several, several uh, unexplained or suicides or you know accidents that happened to people who were either trying to plot against. Johnson, or Mm -hmm. they had information on him that would come up miss, you know, come up dead or or whatever. So there were a lot of, lot of bury, a lot of bodies buried in Texas that LBJ had his fingerprints on. So, So.
0: well, Scott, I really appreciate you doing this, and I know you're you're on your vacation with your family and everything. You actually took time out of that to come here and meet with me, and uh, like I said, it's always good to see one of the guys from back Uh in the day. Who Have no idea. Have proudly wore the uniform and still yeah. to this day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's funny you said. Did you put your badge? Your badge, your Fort Wayne Police mm-hmm. badge, as the badge you still wear. Yeah. Uh, and my wallet, <laughs> my badge is still the Fort Wayne Police badge, even though I carry another one.
1: <laughs> this one, this one, I, I went to to the uh, Brightmans. Yeah. And I saw this sitting there. I said, "Is that for sale?" He said, "Oh, we had ordered it. One officer had ordered it and then decided he didn't want it." I said. Can I buy it? Sure. So they end up selling it to me. I'm like, sweet, because this, this is a full-size badge mm-hmm. instead of the wallet badge That's yeah. what I wanted. So I wear this. This is the one I wear on my uniform. Yeah. And um, uh, I, I wear it proudly. Yeah, I really oh, do. Yeah. I mean, people ask me about Fort Wayne, and I have no problem telling them. You oh, know, yeah. I, I had, a, had a really great career there, and some really great people, and I miss it. And mm-hmm. we're actually talking about sometime in the near future moving back and, you know.
0: Really? Oh yeah, Fort Wayne. Fort Wayne is always good to me too, and it's always good to hear another officer who's retired talk about it in such a a good light. I mean, as crazy as the things are we see going on today, police work is good. Yeah, Uh, it it really is,
1: and and it's it's now more than ever. It's it means something, and people need to realize, Mm -hmm. even though they're they're pulling up, you know, stakes and leaving in droves, that you're there. Police work. I've always I've always believed police work is a calling Mm -hmm. just like people are called to be teachers people are called to be ministers you're called to be a cop and you you have that in your in your soul and if you don't do that you you're missing out on your best destiny oh yeah so i would just i would encourage young officers today to stick it out it will get better and you'll be able to look back on these times and say, my God, I survived that, you know. Yeah. Um, I know it's it's tough. It's very tough. And, and God bless you all, you know. We'll send the angels over you, brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it is, if you're doing it now, it's because that's where God wanted you to be. You he go. called you to be a police officer. He yeah. called you to be a, a peacemaker. And it's, don't forsake your calling, because you'll regret it.
0: Oh, yeah. <laughs> Oh my goodness. That That's so perfect. That's perfect. We're going to end on that note right there. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> Thank you very much. And again, am I allowed to say strawberry concrete? You act like strawberry concrete is a, like No, a, actually, an, no. I can't strawberry, say con- it. strawberry concrete. Strawberry <laughs> <laughs> concrete. Like, say it long, say it
1: loud.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that is your book, and there'll be more books coming out by Scott Morales. And again, all the stuff you did as a policeman. Now you look and go, I can do this now because yeah. of all the stuff I went through. I can now do this.
1: Oh, my God, this. a wealth of material yeah. from what I've been through. Yeah. And, <laughs> and it's it's great to be able to have that kind of a career that you can actually sit back and say, I made a difference. I did yeah. something. Scott, so, thank you very much. Thank you. And, uh, it's been
0: a pleasure. Uh, say hey to your family. I sure will. <laughs> and, and safe trips going back. All right. Thank Folks, you. thanks for listening. We'll catch you again next week on Police Pod Talk. Thanks again for hanging out with us. Remember, you can always go to policepodtalk at gmail.com or check us out on Facebook at Cleveland Jr. or Police Pod Talk. Thanks again. We'll see you next week.